Good evening. I want you to turn to a well-known chapter in the book of the Old Testament. It's called the book of Obadiah. So some of you may need a moment to find it. So we'll go to the book of Obadiah and we'll give you just a moment to do your hunting. When was the last time you read the book of Obadiah? I won't ask for a show of hands. I had an unusual um, leading of the Lord. Normally every Sunday, every Monday, (laughs) Monday to Sunday, every morning when I woke up, first response is, good morning, Lord. Sometimes, by the look of some of you, it's, uh, good Lord, it's morning. (laughs) However, when I'm ready to shower and shave, I have a tough beard. I get four shaves out of a razor blade. It takes me 20 minutes to do a skinhead and a shave. And during that time, I have made it a lifetime habit to put on my telephone, or in the old days was a cassette player, and I listen to the Word of God. It's my listening time. I listen to it when I feel like it, and I listen to it when I don't feel like it. So if you'd like a secret to finding out how to hear from God, grab your Bible every day and just plug it in and play it. However you do it, I've got my Bible on my iPhone, which I think is marvellous. Do you know, if somebody tried to wipe out the Bible these days, they'd have a really hard time, wouldn't they? You'd have to get rid of every iPhone and every recording. And I think God designed it that way wonderfully. So what I'm going to do today is look at the book of Obadiah. And as I was reading through that morning, just probably four weeks ago, when we were praying particularly for Israel, I was flicking through the index, and here was a list of all the Old Testament and New Testament and also the Minor Prophets. And I suddenly, the book of Obadiah just caught my glance. It was like something just said, and that's often how you hear from God. It's often not a booming voice. Sometimes it's just a still, small voice. It's a little nudge. Sometimes it's just a a drawing towards something. And I felt that with Obadiah. So, it only has 21 verses. It's very condensed. And it's written to the tribe of Edom. And we'll talk about that in a moment. So let's go to our first slide. Thanks, Zach. Our previous message, uh, you remember a couple of uh, uh, weeks ago. It seems so long now. Probably last month, wasn't it? We spoke on Esther and the fact that God is hidden in the book of Esther. Uh, We looked at the fact that God is a God who hides himself. And as the message says, clearly, God, you are a God who works behind the scenes. Remember... At our funeral yesterday for Doug Birrell, we just shared a verse from the book of Malachi. God made a special note of those who got together and talked about him. So God's a good eavesdropper, even if you don't know he's there. Remember the old picture you used to see in a lot of homes? Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest, and the speaker or hearer of every conversation. Some of you might be nervous about that, but I think it's a good thing. So we're going to look at then... Uh, Our title of our message, and next slide please, Zach, is Obadiah and October the 7th and you. So it's three parts, Obadiah, October 7 and you. Obadiah, and as I was reading through the book of Obadiah, it suddenly struck me that everything that happened to Israel on the day of October the 7th, 2023, is an absolute description of what happened on the day. And you'll see that in just a moment. The picture you see up there is the destruction of Jerusalem and Nebuchadnezzar and Obadiah gets a particular reference to this. So Obadiah, October 7 and year. Queen Elizabeth, that wonderful queen of the uh, Victorian uh, way back in the early days, she said to her sidekick Sir Walter Raleigh, if there was one proof of God, if I knew nothing, what would I look at? And he said, the Jew, the proof of God is the fact that the Jewish people have lasted for 3,500 years against every attack imaginable. The last time I counted, uh, Jerusalem had at least 13 attacks, had been raised down, attacked, pulled down, put back up. Remarkable. There's not too many cities in the world like that, possibly one up in Afghanistan. And when it comes to the book of Obadiah, He specifically says, I'm preaching against Edom. 
So would you turn with me to Obadiah and we're going to look at verse 10 and we're going to go down to verse 14. And when he described the sack of Jerusalem, Edom was guilty of doing certain things. Let's look at them. Verse 10. For your violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. Now listen to this and tell me if if this doesn't look like October the 7th. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers came in and captive made captive his forces or his soldiers, foreigners entered into his gates, and they cast lots upon Jerusalem. You know the Hamas attack was actually designed to be part of an overall attack in the Arab nations, and they were going to actually attack Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, Haifa. They were going to go right up the coast, and Hamas jumped the gun. The rest of the Arab nations were ready, but... Hamas decided to get a little glory for itself and instead of it being a full-on attack on Israel it turned out to be just a the lonely lonely wolf attack of the Gaza and Hamas right down in the south you cast lots on Jerusalem and you were even as one of them but you should not have looked on the day of your brother in the day that he became an exile and a stranger Neither should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Did anybody see the pictures of Hamas taking the areas and then in the rest, all over the Arab countries, there was such incredible rejoicing. And you've probably seen enough of it to say, they're going to celebrate it. We'd like to do it again and again and again is what they've said. Neither should you have spoken proudly in the day of their distress. The actual Hebrew says, you shouldn't have opened your mouth and laughed at them. You should not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Nor should you have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Do you know the thing that happened when they broke through the fences and they got into the uh, state of Israel? They then opened up the rest and they invited anybody in Gaza to come in. in. And they just rushed through the uh, hole in the wall, the gates, the fences, after they'd shot out all the cameras and everything. And here is this amazing story of the ordinary people of Gaza and they stole and robbed and polluted. They went right into the kibbutzim. They had been working there in the days before. They got maps of all the kibbutz. And it's a marvellous sort of thing, this whole situation, is that what was done for them for good, they used purely as a mapping exercise to come in and find out who to shoot, where to go, who to take. My wife and I worked on a kibbutz gavat in Israel, up in the north, up near Nazareth, and it was a great experience. And you wouldn't have found a more gentle, more peaceable, law-loving people. So in verse 14 it says, Neither should you have stood in the crossway to cut off those that did escape. And that's exactly what happened there. There were those who were running, and they got to the intersection, they pulled up their cars, and they shot those who were trying to escape. I read the story of one man who came in and rescued them and he saw at the intersection all of these people lined up with their guns. He wheeled around and he got away from it. But here at the intersection, they were cut off. And if you look a bit further, it says, you should not have delivered up those of Jacob's who remained in the day of distress. 240 plus captives taken into this. So here in the book of Obadiah, you've almost got a word for word description written some 2,500 years ago. And one of the interesting things about the Bible is that from cover to cover, it's very consistent. It's a fascinating thing that if you go to all the wars of Israel, you'll find that the tactics of the enemy have always been the same. And interesting enough, when you see the victories of Israel, you will see that God has worked almost the same way in every case with amazing miracles. I've enjoyed watching stories that inspire of some of the soldiers and what's happened to them. In the 1967 war, which was uh, when Syria attacked, the group of soldiers were up on the hillside and in front of them and behind them were all the enemies and in front of them and behind them were minefields and they couldn't do anything if they went forward. So they did what they were supposed to do. They got on their hands and knees, they got out their bayonets and their knives and they poked in the ground looking for mines and then trying to disarm them. And then amazingly, came this huge wind and it blew 30 centimetres of topsoil off the ground. And when they looked up, here are all the mines exposed and they just walked through. 
and that's an amazing miracle of God you'll see the same thing in the war of independence and in also the six day war where amazingly God did miracles now when the secular historians write these down they don't like mentioning the miraculous parts in fact when at West Point the military academy in America when they're recording the story of wars and they're trying to teach their graduates and their officers how to actually conduct a war they have deliberately left out the Independence Day the 60th, uh, 67 and because it's got a miraculous element and it does not make sense they can't instruct their generals how to have a miracle and so here's this amazing passage all the way through the Bible where Obadiah says these are the days where you shall see the hand of God now I believe we're going to see more miracles I just uh, watched on YouTube today where one of the Israeli soldiers goes into Gaza and in his book uh, in his uniform in his military pants he's got a little is a devotional book for Israelis and he showed it to one of the uh, TV folk and he said look have a look at this and in the pocket up one side comes a bullet hole at the other side is a bullet hole and here in this little tiny devotional booklet is just grazed off the edge of the cover a bullet has gone through and out and the reason that it had a bullet was they were supposed to have been shot with RPG because it was friendly fire in the fog of the war they they couldn't see who it was and so they were going to put the computers into it and shoot them and at the last moment they had to change the computer but the soldier forgot to reprogram it for little bullets instead of the big ones and so when they fired this little bullet went through his pocket hit the book came out the other side and amazing just small miracles like that so if you look at God working in Israel and you look at God working there just miracles all the time so let's go to our next slide please Zach. Edom is the country right in the south and if you look at the map you'll see that the kingdom of Edom is there the Nabatu tribes from whence come the Nabataeans over on the other side is uh, Abaru tribes from whence come the Arabs you look at a whole range of all the different countries around there uh, Aramaic and all the various ones and these are all the enemies of Israel the big red area is the actual closer look up at the kingdom of Moab now having given you the geographics and we're going to have a look at another slide thanks Zach who is Edom going to give you a slight introduction to Edom Edom is descended from Esau now you'll know the story of Esau Abraham marries Sarah and they have a son and his name is Isaac Isaac marries Rebecca Rebecca is an amazing girl I want to take a moment on this Isaac gets married to Rebecca because Eliezer the servant has gone to look for a bride for his master Isaac and he said Lord please guide me in the way I being in the way the Lord led me great scripture and out comes Rebecca with the water jar on her shoulder and Eliezer has got how many camels 10 camels do you know how much water a camel can drink at one sitting 200 liters and if you get a really thirsty one who's gone seven months without water they can tuck away amazing amount of water so this girl comes out and says here's a glass of water for you Eliezer uh, would you like me to draw water for your camels and she waters 10 camels now that is 200 liters of water per camel that's some girl I mean she has got muscles like Arnold Schwarzenegger you wouldn't want to give this lady a trick now why I'm telling you that is because they have two sons and you'll read in the book of uh, the uh, Genesis that in 24 when she's pregnant she starts to feel in her womb to uh, fighting and the amplified says she could feel her children kicking and wrestling in her womb now my son Adam knew my voice when we talked with him played with him in the womb we'd play his favorite songs we'd pat him we'd talk to him and Nancy would say it's okay for you but look at this and you'd see his little feet going doink a doink a doink a doink a doink like this <laughs> and, and she had to put up with the doink a doink a doink it was good to be a father but the lady had to put up with this and when Adam was born uh Gandhi said Paul you're used to working with bodies in your profession catch his little head and his little butt put him up on your wife's chest so we do that and just before I put him up on my wife's chest I hold him like this on his little butt and his little head I turn to him and as much as a boy who's one minute in the world 
I say to him, G'day, Adam. Welcome into the world. And this little kid goes and looks at me. And when somebody tells me something I'm a little bit sus about, do you know what I do? I cock one eyebrow. You know what this little kid did? He looked at me as much as he could and went like that. And the, the whole place cracked up and said, no doubt about his father. And Rebecca can feel this fighting inside. Now she says, Lord, I have sought you because I've been barren uh, 40 years, uh, 20 years. Isaac married at 40 and at 60, Rebecca has the first child. And he has been asked by God and sought looking for God and she says God if I have asked you for this child what's going on inside and she went and sought the Lord amazing girl she's not only can water 30 camels she's got near to hear from God and when she goes to seek God the Lord says to her directly the Lord says to her there are two nations in your womb and the younger one shall rule the older shall serve the younger and years later you'll see in the uh, book of Malachi I think it is where God says Jacob I've loved but Esau have I hated and there's a couple of reasons for that when um, Jacob is in the womb and Isaac's in the womb uh, sorry when uh, Esau Esau decides he's going first bigger stronger hairy red covered out all over I saw a picture of a little Chinese girl the other day when she was born and she has got this incredible mop of hair whereas all my family look like me. And it takes them months to grow, takes them months to grow hair. But here's this amazing little, beautiful little Chinese girl, and she got a full head of hair. Out comes Esau. He is red and hairy all over. And he's big and strong, and so he goes first. But Jacob, who's been wrestling with him in the womb, decides, I'm not going to have this. And so as he's exiting, that's his Esau exiting, Jacob reaches out his hand and grabs Esau by the heel. And... He is called, and midwife says, who is this? And I'm going to call him Jacob, heel snatcher or contender and fighter. And you'll see the fight that was in Rebecca to water 30 camels is going to come out in the two sons. They are both strong, but in different ways. Jacob, he is the plain man. He's not hairy. He's bookish. And it's interesting that if you look at the tribe of Israel and the Jewish people, they have those same traits today. If you're an Orthodox, ultra Orthodox Jew in Israel, your whole life is spent studying the Bible. The wife goes to work, but you study the Bible. He's bookish. He has how many children? Through Leah and Rachel? Twelve. And they become the patriarchs of the tribes of Israel. Now let's go to the other side. The other boy, his name is Esau. And the scripture three times specifically says, Esau is Edom, so you don't miss it. And Esau leaves the country and goes up into the hill country of Mount Seir, up near the Dead Sea, just slightly over into the southwest. And he fathers a kingdom of people called the Edomites. And years later, guess who one of the descendants of Edom is? The Greek word for Edom is Idumea. And King Herod is who? He's an Idumean. You'll read it in the history of Josephus. You won't see it in your Bible. But the Jews hate him, and so he tries to carry favor by his building projects, and he builds them a temple. But what was King Herod famous for? Trying to kill the babies in Bethlehem. So this attitude's coming down through Esau, and it says particularly, if you look at that in blue, Esau hated Jacob, and he couldn't wait till the 30 days of mourning are over, and he was going to kill. And so mother says, get out of the country. So... Let's go to our next slide. Let's look at Edom and his tree. Here is a hatred that will last for centuries, right up to 2023. Esau marries Adar the Hittite. Now, she's deliberately married because he knows that it's going to get up his mother and father's nose. So he chooses a bride from the enemy of Israel. And he marries actually a couple of times. And they have a son called Eliphat. You'll recognize his name similar in the book of Job. And the Eliphat marries a lady called Timnah. I've given you a picture so it makes more sense to you. And they have descendants. And the descendants of this marriage are the Amalekites. And the Amalekites are the enemies of Israel. 
And if you look at the red line on the right-hand side there, as Saul is about to kill the uh, folk from Edom, and as Joab is also finishing the job, one of the boys escapes and doesn't get killed. And his name is Hadad. And Hadad goes down to Egypt. And from Hadad will come another enemy of the Jews many hundreds of years later. And guess who he is? His name is Haman the Agagite. He is called in the scripture, he is the Jews' enemy. Esther 3.10. So don't you like, I found the most villainous picture I could. And as I said before, when my wife and I were in kibbutz, we went along to the Feast of Purim. And whenever they read the story of Esther, the kids... Uh, respond by going every time Haman's name is mentioned and they beat the drum. It's a great story. And if you haven't read uh, Esther for a while, let me encourage you to do that. Okay, we're going to go... There's the background. That's the end of the exposition. And we're going to look at the next slide, thanks. Here's just a little bit of background. Here's uh, Dead Sea. In the middle is Petra, the Rosewood City, down south, and that's the whole area of the Kingdom of Edom. It's famous... It got taken over by the Nabataean Empire. Uh, it's famous for trade, hydraulic systems. They had brilliant uh, dams and waters in the middle of this dry desert area. However, unfortunately, many years later, earthquakes will destroy this city, AD 363, 551. Everything gets destroyed. The trade routes change, and Petra just becomes a backwater. In fact, the only folk who knew about it were the Crusaders, and when they left, the only folk who remembered it were the Bedouins and became a lost city. So, on the next slide, thanks. Here is Mount Seir. It's populated by the Edomites. At the top is an altar for human sacrifice. So, it's not, they're not as innocent as they seem. They change over the years. Israel takes them, they fight back, they get lost in all the wars, and eventually the Edomites became known as the Edomians, and of course, we've mentioned that. Now, there's Mount Seir. On our next slide, my wife and I, when we first married, we decided that we would go and visit Petra. And so here we are on the horse going down through the valley, and you'll see this long, almost ravine. It's, you could almost reach out and touch it like that. It's so steep. The walls are huge, absolutely high. So as you come through this, next slide, thanks, Doug, you come around the corner and you see this brilliant, absolutely amazing sandstone carving these are tombs, and they're cut out of, the, out of the rock. And all around are hundreds and hundreds of these rock-cut tombs. Now, those tombs are all built later on, but this is the dwelling country of Edom. And they said, we are so high, we sit up on a rock. And if you look at Obadiah 1 and verse 4, though you hide yourself up in the rocks, I'll still pull you down from there. So we enjoyed our time actually seeing it coming alive, made Bible come uh, almost like a, a personal tour of what the lands were like. Uh, next slide, Zach. And one of the things that uh, Edom had particularly done was that when Judah was getting taken over and Israel was getting taken over, they went down there to see what was going to happen. Now, these are enemies of Israel, and they are there, and they mocked Israel. Now, if you look at Psalm 137, so we'll take it so you're not having to turn to it. Remember, O Lord the sons of Edom, the day of the fall of Jerusalem, and they said, down, down with her, graze her to the ground. So they're sitting back watching uh, Judah getting destroyed, and they're mocking and they're laughing. They're shooting survivors, they're stopping them escaping, and they're taking their goods. And Psalm 137 doesn't mean much to you when you're first reading this. When you're a Christian, you come to the second part of this verse where it says, O daughter of Babylon, you devastator. How blessed will be the one who repays you just like you treated us. And how blessed will the man be, this is an amazing prayer, who takes your little ones and seizes your little ones and smashes them against the rock. What happened in the day with Gaza? When in the city of Gaza, one of the things they did was kill babies and children. They burnt them alive. Some of them with hands tied together. Some were with their parents. And this same brutality has come down through the children of Edom right down to the present and I'll tell you why we're focusing on that in just a moment and Obadiah then gave certain don'ts and if you look at them I think it's our next slide again we're going to repeat this 
when you go into your brother Jacob's land and the city is getting destroyed, here's what he says. You should not have looked on the day of your brother when he became an exile. You shouldn't have rejoiced over the children of Israel in the day of their destruction. You shouldn't have spoken proudly in the day of their distress. Everything that happened in Hamas is in this same verse. Quite remarkable that you see this repeating thing going all the way through. In fact, the, uh, the old um, Pharisees from which came our present-day um, rabbinic and the present-day Jewish things that we have, when somebody says uh, they've given an exposition of a Bible verse and they've given everything about it, they just smile sweetly because they say every word in the Bible has at least 70 different levels of meaning. So how could you get up as a Christian and say, I've expounded this verse and that's all there is to it? They just smile and they say, God has wrapped up so much in the Bible. And so when you look at the children of Edom and you look at the devastation, Obadiah becomes a prophecy about a particular moment and it's going to be fulfilled time and time and time again. Next slide, thanks, Zach. And it becomes a remarkable comment on prophecy in general. In fact, good old Mr. Schofield, of those who love Schofield Bibles, he said, Edom has a remarkably prominent place in prophecy as a picture of the final judgment of God on the Gentiles and the world powers. And the last uh, verse 15 says, The day of the Lord is near on the heathen. As you have done, so shall it be done unto you. So that basically ties together the source of hatred, the vitriol and the bitterness. When uh, you look at the Jewish nation and you see that it's the one nation that has been born again, so to speak, I used that in the, started again in 1948, revived a dead language called Hebrew. Absolutely amazing. And today it's become the source of a blessing for the world. And yet if you look at it, the moment they announced that they were a state and it was a Ben-Gurion who announced and read that we have become a state, the very next day they got attacked on all sides. And it's remarkable. If you'd like to look at the survival of uh, Israel all through the history, you'll see that it's only God who could have made this nation like it is. And there's another interesting psalm. If you like to look next slide, thanks, Zach. It's Psalm 83. Psalm 83 was probably fulfilled on the day of the War of Independence when all of these nations attacked. Here's his prayer. Lord, keep not silence, hold not your peace, for lo, your enemies make a tumult, and they that hate you have lifted up the head. Why would a human being hate God? Think about it for a moment. Why is it that you see two seeds, the seed of the devil and you see the seed of the good side? And... They have taken crafty counsel against your people. That has been the last couple of months. You know, this Hamas thing was planned for probably about two years. And they've consulted against your hidden ones or your sheltered ones, the Jewish people. They've said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation. And reason? That the name of Israel may be no more held in remembrance. That's what they want. They do not want a two-state solution. They could not live side by side. What do they want? the complete annihilation of any Jew. You'll see it in the Holocaust. You'll see it, in fact, I just read the story of Denmark. Denmark had a Christian king, and when he knew that the Germans were coming up, he relinquished Denmark and controlled, and so there wasn't so much controversy. And one of the men working for him was working, with the, was working in the same office as the Nazis who were planning the destruction of the Jews. 700,000 Jews in Denmark. And what he did... He called up the officers in Denmark and said, on this day, Germany is going to come in and capture all of the Jews. And so what they did, they got all the fishing boats, they got ships, they got everything, and they escaped across the narrow passage between Denmark and Sweden. And 95% of the Jews escaped from that nation because somebody had been listening into a conversation. Uh, it's just, I mean, we'd be here all night telling the amazing stories. And if we go back to that slide, Zach, they've conspired together with one mind. Against you, they make a covenant. Look who makes the covenant and the attack. Edom, the Ishmaelites, Moab, Hagrites, Gebel, Ammon and Amalek. There's Amalek again. Philistia, who is what? Gaza. Gaza. 
the name uh, Palestine comes from where? Uh, it comes from way back before that. Palestine is the Latin version of Philistine. And so here is a land that's never had a state, but Rome takes the most wicked enemy and says, this land we're going to call Palestine. So fascinating. When you look at that, all the how, how did God arrange all that? Amazing. And they've joined with Assyria. That's uh, Syria as we know it today. They've helped the children of Lot, the Ammonites and the Moabites, and they've been an arm of strength to the enemies of God. So all of this to tell you how we should pray and what we should do. So we go to Psalm 83 and we look at that uh, prayer we just read there. Now, this is a prayer. And it's not a prayer of the same kind as Psalm 84. If you go to Psalm 84 and verse 1, it says, How amiable are your tabernacles, O Lord. It's a wonderful prayer, but it's not Psalm 83. Psalm 83... And next slide, Zach. Psalm 83 is not an amicable prayer. Psalm 83 is a, nor is that, by the way, nor is it the prayer of Christians at ease in Western culture praying nice prayers for Jerusalem. It is the passionate cry of a Jewish nation which has been attacked by the enemies, the antichrists of God. How do I know that Islam is antichrist? Because they don't believe that Jesus is the Christ. And over the uh, banners in the, the Dome of the Rock, is written, God has no son. And it says Antichrist, and so you go to the book of John, he is Antichrist who has no belief in the son. How do you know you're Antichrist? It's as simple as that. They, and I think one of the reasons for this is, way back in the beginning, when God promised Adam and Eve that your seed and the seed of the dead devil will fight each other. He made a promise, and this goes right down through history, and you can see God preserving at every point the children of Israel, children of Abraham, when they should have been wiped out, and one of the great proofs of God is the Jewish race. So the passionate cry of Psalm 83 only makes sense when you realize that it's the prayer of a nation that's about to be destroyed. At the moment, if Hamas is not defeated, Israel will get wiped out. It'll embolden all the rest of the Arab world. They're sitting back and waiting to see how we're going to handle this and how Hamas is going to be either beaten. Now, at the moment, they estimate there's probably six to 8,000 of the Hamas soldiers have been buried in the tunnels under the grounds where they've been destroyed but that still leaves something like 20,000 Hamas soldiers. And it also leaves a lot of Gazans who want to see Israel destroyed. If you don't believe me, just look at the places they were rejoicing and in the West Bank, up in Hezbollah, you name it. And I think that there's a number of things we could take out of this, and I realise this is more of a fireside chat than it is a preach tonight, but if you go to the next slide, Zach, I think that October 7 was permitted by God to manifest good and evil because we were living in such laid back, uh, look at our Western, all our Western countries, nothing wrong, Islam is a, a religion of peace is what they said, we're just so peaceful. But October 7 was permitted to show just how evil a nation that's corrupted by the devil and I'm not including all the innocent Palestinians, but because they believe in the Quran, they have no choice. And the Quran tells them, kill the Jews. What does the nation of every Arab country in the world, what do they want to do? They want to wipe out the Jews because that's their destiny and they want to establish a worldwide caliphate. That's their aim. And as it goes for Israel, so it goes for the Western nations. If Hamas is not defeated, you're going to see in Britain, well, you're already seeing it in Britain, you're going to see it in Europe, you're already seeing it in Europe, you're going to see the emboldened nations starting up against everything. And we could take a long while to talk about, I think, here's my prognostications, I'm not, a, I'm not prophesying this, but here's what I think will be the likely scenario. Israel is going to win this war. And Iran's proxies like Hezbollah in Lebanon also will be defeated 
Now, they haven't made a declaration at all. By the way, if anybody's taking notes uh, and you want them, just give me a query, give me your email address, and we'll scooch you the notes. So, Isbollah is sitting back, and they're not going to war. Well, so they say, but how can you not call it a war when you've got rockets and bombs and people? Yeah, so many people. And USA administration, I think, is going to change in 2024. God have mercy on us if we see the Democrats back in again. Now, at the moment, Biden is doing a soft shoe shuffle because he can't not let this go because America is going to look really bad. If Israel gets defeated and America looks bad, that's going to make a really bad mess. So he's got a shuffle between the two. He's got on one party in the State Department all these people saying, let's be left-wing, let's be woke, let's not look after Israel. And you only have to listen to the universities and you can see how much that's infiltrated. And at the other time, he's got the Republicans saying, we've got to defend Israel. So I think that that will result in Israel and USA attacking Iran. I think they'll come out of that a limited time of peace for Israel that will follow. But during that time, I think one of the things that God will do, anti-Semitism will start to rise. Whoever would have thought we in Australia would hear Jew... Uh, left-wing Palestinian protests on the steps of the Opera House shouting, gas the Jews, blank the Jews, F the Jews. Whoever would have thought it. But that's been ticking away down underneath because our left-wing governments and our foolish liberal governments have let in enemies who believe in the Quran. And I'll come in a moment to what <coughs> I think we can do about this. I think that that will bring such anti-Semitism that... God will use it to bring back the nation of Israel even stronger. If uh, you look at one of the prophets, it says, I will send hunters and fishers into the nations and they shall bring my people back. Now, the fishers are those who bring back Israel and the good times and when they can escape the countries. The hunters are when the attack against Israel is so bad that they, that's when the pogroms happen, that's when the wars happen that kill the Jews in those countries. And some Jews will ignore when the fishers come and warn them to come back. And unfortunately, that'll end up them being hunted. So, meanwhile, I think what will happen is fundamental Islam is going to regroup. At the moment, what's happening with Israel? Uh, we'll give you so many hostages if you give us a day's truce. And all of the time, by the way, at the moment, coming back, and they're allowing people to come back into the north, and coming back into the north are hundreds of young men, all at fighting age, and they're going to try and re-establish. Watch this picture. And I think that will then set the stage for the lay down uh, of the battles ready for Ezekiel and so on. Now, I wouldn't have time to even look at that tonight, but I think that's what we'll do. We will see the stage set for the second coming of Christ. Now let me say this to you. You are alive in the most amazing time since the days of Jesus Christ. You are part of God's answer. The church was made to defend Israel and help Israel despite all the bad things that happened in the past. And these are amazing days. I think I said to you the last time I was, when I was a young boy, I thought, Oh, Lord, wouldn't it be wonderful to be alive in the days of the, uh, the last days? I've since changed my prayer. <laughs> and I've, <clears throat> I've realized that the most important thing a church can do is get alongside Israel. There are many practical ways you can do it. But what I want to do tonight is come down to not just an exposition of where the hatred comes from or why it's like it is. I want to look at how then should we pray because most of us won't be able to go to Israel. Uh, slide, thanks, Zach. Effective prayer for Israel is not childish prayer. It's mature prayer. It's not the kind of prayer that gets all worried and says, Oh God, what's happening? I wish God would come and please come quickly, Lord. It's the kind of prayer where God doesn't need convincing about what to do. He looks for co-laborers in prayer. He wants you to pray with maturity, sensitivity, keep informed and let the Holy Spirit lead you. In fact, I would suggest to you that the more you can pray in tongues when it comes to Israel, the better it's going to be because you're praying against a spiritual force. And sometimes you'll pray with your understanding. Sometimes you'll pray with a heart, with a spirit.
God is a perfect genealogist. If you don't believe that, just read the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, it's scattered all the way through. Ever wondered why there were so many genealogies in the Bible? Because it's simply saying God knows people. And he's also a perfect accountant. He knows the sum total of every life as it's passing away, as it's going into eternity. I think that I would say to you, here's a big God. So big that my mind can't conceive of that. He can handle more prayers in just one minute than the New York, the New York Telephone Exchange with millions of numbers. He, it's not a problem for him. It doesn't even raise a sweat for God. He's also a perfect judge. Abraham said to God, do you remember the, in the book of Genesis where Abraham says, he almost wags his finger at the Almighty. And he says, God, you cannot judge the righteous with the wicked. That would not be like you. Far from you, God. And so he whittles God down from 50 to 10. And God can't even find 10 in the city. Eight was what he found. For the sake of two righteous people. And you can be sure that God is going to be a just judge. So how do I know that God looks after the nations? Because Isaac said, Cursed be everyone that curses Jacob. And blessed be he that blesses Jacob. Which is to say, God's job is looking after the cursing. Our job is not to curse. Our job is to pray. Let me wrap it up with the two thoughts here. I think that this picture of all the hatred of the Jews reflects that there are two seeds. The seeds of children of light, seeds of the kingdom of darkness. In fact, Jesus said... Uh, when somebody said, shall we pull up the wheat and the tares? Shall we pull up the tares? These are the children of the wicked one. And the Lord said to the um, keepers of the vineyard, don't pull up the tares at the moment, otherwise you'll uproot the wheat. He said, let it alone and let them all grow together. And they'll, at the end of the harvest, God shall send out his angels and he shall work out whose tares, whose wheat. There's something in the heart of a human being that is made for God. But at some point, I don't know the answer. I have no theological explanation of this. The good, the bad, and the ugly. How come at some point in one family, Esau and Jacob, grows up with such a division that they hate each other? Now, probably the only good point in the story of Jacob and Esau is they did reconcile at the end. And that says that even so, God can still work in the dark and in the light. We shouldn't curse Muslims. We should pray for their salvation. You know, the best way to undo the effects of Islam is bunches of them getting saved. And all over the world at the moment are people coming to Christ. They can't do it publicly, but the Lord is appearing to them. I had lunch with a friend just recently uh, who was brought up in a JW family. And, interesting enough, as he's growing up, he's got a mum or another family member who's very Eastern Orthodox, who's got all the icons and everything like that. And he said to me, Paul, he said, you're different. He said, there's, there's a lightness about you. In fact, I shouldn't probably tell you this, but when we were going through uh, that little valley going into Petra, and I was talking to one of the Arab guides, the one who was behind me in that photo, uh, we, we had a great conversation. He's Muslim, I'm Christian. And he drops back and he says to my wife, your husband shines with an inner light. I thought, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> But he's trying to say in his own way that he could sense something different. And so I'm having lunch with uh, this particular gentleman and he said, Paul, you're different. And he said, how come uh, you have clients who are way into all this new age and occult? And I said, well, that's, I still treat all people equally. I said, I can't ask, are you Christian or are you not? But he said, do you know, I came to see you and you brought down a client and you helped him out. He said, you must be a pastor or a priest. I said, how'd you work that? He said, well, nobody else would do things like that because I'd picked up a client at the airport from Melbourne. I'd taken them down to get a treatment from this particular specialist. I brought him back to my place and that's when I gave hospitality. And he says, hmm. he says, are you a pastor or a priest? <laughs> and so I said, okay, I can't hide it any longer. Not, not as, he said, do you know what happened after I'd seen you that day? He said, I went to bed that night 
And he said, suddenly in the corner of my room, a light shone in the corner of the room. And I knew straight away that I had met somebody, me, today who was a children of light. Isn't that interesting? Now, I haven't preached to this guy yet. And we had a marvelous time up at the Mobile Tavern just having lunch together and talking about this. And I thought, God, this is an opportunity to reach into this man's heart and life. And there's something in his heart that reaches towards the light. My uh, family is children of six. I'm a twin. I'm not quite Jacob and Esau. But, you know, my, my sister has been so hurt by my mother's upbringing and the way she treated her that she doesn't want to know about God today. I personally think down underneath there's something ticking away down inside. But here's a twin family, me and, a twin, me, my, me and my twin sister, and I've grown towards the light and she's grown away from it. And as she's in her family, all the things that people do who are in the occult, teacup, leaf, reading, all the stuff that belongs to the dark side. And as I looked at it, I remember that it was a moment in my life when I stepped out the front, I gave my life to Christ at an altar call in a little Assembly of God church who didn't have any more people than we've got here at the moment. And I gave my life to Christ, and as I'm getting up off the floor, it was like a light switched on. And I tried to read Pilgrim's Progress when I was a boy where the man comes up to the cross, he sees Jesus on the cross, and the burden rolls off his back. I never understood that as a kid. But suddenly as I stood up from the floor where I was praying and giving my life to Christ, suddenly a light switched on, and I thought, ah, that's what that story was all about. He saw and gave his life to Christ. Now, I think it would be good if we could just stitch this all together with a few words of prayer. And then, Kenny, over to you if you wish to. We've got one more slide, I believe, Zach. Here's a quote from Theodore Herzl. He was the man who started the return of the Jews to Israel. And don't believe all you read about Zionism. And there's a, a, a fake book going out called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. It was a dummy made up in the communist revolution, how they're trying to take over the world and Jews have got their clutches into everything. But he started the movement, and this is what he said. The Jews who will it shall achieve their state. This is 1896. The world will be liberated by our freedom. They will be enriched by our wealth. They will be magnified by our greatness. And whatever we attempt there for our own benefit will redound mightily and beneficially to the good of all mankind. Now, if that's not a prophecy, I don't know what is. And if you look at the list of Nobel Prize winners... And if you look at the list of Islamists who've not won Nobel Prizes, one, two, three at the most. And on this side, you know, Einstein was a Jew. Now, I know there's been good Jews and bad, but what we see is an amazing thing in the work of God that he knows those who are his. Now, we as a church should pray for Israel. I don't have all the answers what God's going to do, but let me wrap it up with this. I think one of the reasons God has permitted such an atrocious thing is for a number of reasons. One, it shook the secular Jews' faith in their intelligence system. They were caught napping. The same thing happened on October the 7th as happened 50 years previously in the other war. They were caught napping. And that'll get sorted out, I'm sure, and there'll probably be a few heads rolling out of it. But I think the reason that God permitted that was so that it would expose everything underneath. And the amazing thing that's happening at the moment is as soon as this happened, 300,000 Jewish soldiers came back, whereas before they were fighting over, we're not going to fly, we're not going to come in the war. Back they came, and it united the nation of Israel in such a way. And one of the other interesting things that's happening is that secular Jews who don't even believe in God, they're just Israelis, I went to Israel thinking we're going to see a very religious country. Uh -uh. We work on a kibbutz that was a socialist kibbutz. I think the nearest thing uh, they had to uh, religion was they had a Bible study on archaeological discoveries in Israel. That was as close as this secular kibbutz got. But it gave Nance and I an insight into the mentality of a secular Jew, much like here in Australia. Uh, Christmas, Easter bunnies, Santa Claus, that's about the equivalent. But what it's done is that many, many of them are now turning to God and they're starting to go back towards the God of Israel. 
and they are asking, what's our future? What's it going to be? So I think out of this will come a resurgence of spiritual openness, and who knows at that point what will happen with the church in Israel. But as Paul said in the book of Romans, God has not finished with Israel. And I long for the day when we shall see Christians and Jews being able to resound together. In fact, at the moment, I think Israel has discovered that their best friends in the world are who? Christians. Christians. So, are we ready to pray? Let's just put down our books, our notes for a moment. Let's reflect for a moment. Lord, we don't understand the good and the bad of thousands of years of hatred. But we do know that you're a perfect genealogist. You're a perfect account keeper. You know everything that is to do with our lives. Not one has caught you by surprise. We can't answer all the questions, Lord, about the injustices, but we do know that you're a just God and that you'll use everything for good. We thank you, Lord, that you will turn to good all those who are called by you. And we ask that even now, as we think about the scriptures we've looked at today, we pray for the nation of Israel. We pray there will come a great turning in their hearts so that one day they shall say, Blessed be he that comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, we pray that in the Islamic nations there shall come moments where you send out your angels and you bring them to you and they will become uh, children of God and the light will be separated from darkness. Lord, how you do that, how you work out the wheat and the tears, we don't understand or we don't pretend to know, but we will trust you that we as a church are part of your strategy in these days. We pray for Israel. We pray peace on Jerusalem. We pray in the situations with the hostages, Lord, that we shall see your work and your hand. And we pray that we'll see redemption. We pray, Lord, that all over the world, nations will wake up to the fact of what a deadly enemy is sitting in their gates and wants to do to them what they've already done to Israel. So we pray, Lord, may your Holy Spirit come in a very blessed way. We take a moment now, Lord, to understand what you are saying when you say, my Father has been working and I am working, and even when we don't see you working, even when we don't understand it, even when we don't feel it, you are working and you're doing a great thing in this country. So, Lord, may the truth of these words sink into our hearts. May you give us opportunities to speak to other people, those who are bound up in the media and only hear one side, give us the ability to speak such a way that their eyes will be opened. And Lord, we pray in Jesus' name for our brothers and sisters in Christ all through the whole world. We pray that all these Christians are being persecuted. Lord, even that will redound for good. And we pray that all over the world as the anti-Semitism arises, we shall see a return to Israel of your people. Lord, you who have kept track of them ever since they were scattered, you are not caught by surprise. And we thank you in Jesus' name that we shall see your good and perfect work. Amen. 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 Amen.